Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories, and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with me here today. I so appreciate you. I'm so grateful for these times we get to be together, to bring you some amazing guests, and to talk about the things that you can do in your life to thrive, to thrive in your life, to thrive in your business, to live a life as a thriving entrepreneur. It's so important. Um, you know, some of you are like, but Steve, I have a job. I, you know, maybe I don't even really dream even of having my own business. And that's okay. We've got such great insights and tips because being the best version of you is really what we're thinking about when we talk about living as a thriving entrepreneur. It's creating that space in the world and then defending it, growing it, making it bigger, that space that is you. And all it takes is to just simply be you right here, right where you are today. I know a lot of times we wish that there was some kind of deeper thing that we could do that would magically make everything okay. But the best I've ever found is just purely and simply looking at today. What can I do today? Yesterday's gone. My good friend Ernie Villanueva always says, yesterday was a canceled check. Tomorrow is a promissory note. Today is the only legal tender you can spend. And that's so important for us to really look at our day, our life, and be able to say, what can I do today? Maybe I totally missed it yesterday. Maybe I was on fire awesome yesterday. Those are both, you know, and maybe yesterday was just kind of, you know, whatever. It was blah. Maybe you took a nap all day. That's cool, too. The point being is, is that today is the day to maximize. Now that doesn't mean you have to be a driven A-type personality and you need to spend all 24 hours today trying to find the cure for cancer. In fact, some days the best way to maximize today is to take a nap all day. Sometimes that's what you need. And that's okay too. That's no less thriving than if you were to have a breakthrough and cure cancer today. It's just simply about being your best today, about showing up, about making the difference, about doing the things that only you can do in the place where you are right now today. Tomorrow will take care of itself, and 10 years from now, you'll be in a different place, you'll be a different person, you'll know and do different things. But today is the day that we have. It would be so awful to spend all day today worrying about tomorrow only to have tomorrow not come or even to just have tomorrow not be what we expected. There are so many examples in history and these two authors I'm going to bring to you today, they give some great examples of places all over the world where people were held in captivity for hundreds and hundreds of years, an invading force came and took them over and ruled their country uh, with an iron fist. I mean, horribly. They were enslaved to marauding Turks, to, uh, you know, people from Babylon. Uh, the, the whole entirety of history is just filled with people enslaved to one another. And yet, wherever you are, what can you do to maximize today. Sometimes you may find yourself as the leader of an army and you don't know what to do because the battle seems like it's lost. But a really true leader, a powerful dynamic leader, they come up with a solution that others don't. And so we're also going to talk about uh, you know, how to be an advantage maker and how to find the things inside of 
that others don't. We want to take a look at history and the ways that people overcame. We want to take a look at past and current leaders and how they exploded and made such a difference in the same space that you and I live in just by knowing some things that maybe you and I don't know yet. But we're going to learn them together here today. We're going to look at history. We're going to see powerful people on both sides of the equation, both people enslaved as well as people in leadership, and get some insights and some secrets in how we can overcome in the place that we are today. What can I do to maximize today? Because that's what it takes to live as a thriving entrepreneur. I've got two really great guests and we're going to spend some time with them today. So we're not going to, uh, you know, even have a commercial break. We're going to jump right into it here on Thriving Entrepreneur. Join me in welcoming Michael Repas. Hey, Michael, how are you doing today? I'm great. Steve, how are you? I am doing really good. So looking forward to hearing about this book. So we've been on kind of a journey uh, for people that have been watching the books over the course of this last year. And the last book was a lawyer perspective. You know, you went into court and, uh, you know, kind of, I think one personally, you know, I mean, I'm not a judge, but I'll play one on TV. <laughs> the court case for the Parthenon, uh, you know, marbles and, and the Parthenon being owned by the right people. But um, this is more of the story version of it. So let's start off. First, tell us a little bit about your background so they know how that you got interested in this to begin with. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Steve. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and I and I love your interest in, in archaeology and, and this particular, you know, subject, which is near and dear to me. So when I was um, when I was doing my uh, master's of international law, I, I wrote a paper on uh, one very particular set of uh, of antiquities that had been looted. And they were from Greece. And they were part of the Parthenon. And they were all these beautiful sculptures that were still on the face of the Parthenon until um, the English came um, in the early in the early 1800s, very early 1800s, and ripped them all off. They tore them off with crowbars and they had saws. They had about 100 laborers and, and they paid off the, the, the Turks who had occupied Greece and were still, you know, the authority in, in all of Greece, including Athens. They paid them all off. They, they ripped these things off for nearly nine years boxed them all up and shipped them to England. Ultimately, the English Parliament bought them and donated them to the British Museum. And from that point to today, they have been part of the, you know, the British um, the British Museum's collection. They are owned by, and I used owned in parentheticals here, they're owned by the British, and they're not owned by the Greeks anymore. They refuse to return them. All types of diplomatic efforts have been rejected, you know, uh, repeatedly. So I was just really shocked that, um, you know, the law didn't support the Greeks. I couldn't understand how an occupied people, they were effectively slaves. I couldn't understand how an occupied people, you know, for almost 400 years, they were slaves. If I, if I could add from 1483, um, they were still occupied by the Turkish, you know, uh, empire. So I couldn't understand how, how can you steal one of the most notable pieces of a, of, of a country's, you know, culture identity, you know, the Parthenon, for God's sake. You know, how, can, how can you just let that be torn apart and sent to another museum, first of all? And then how can you let the people who ripped it off claim that they own it? It, it just for me, it was just so offensive. What is what the heck is going on with the law? Why is the law like that? So that's what inspired me to write my first um you know, legal article about it. I, I was very fortunate. I, I published in a really, uh, a really well-established, you know, law review. Um, and I started lecturing about it and, and sort of my, you know, my level of interest expanded. I, I, I started giving bigger and bigger lectures. I lectured in front of UNESCO before I've been, you know, the inauguration of the, of the uh, Parthenon Museum, the new, the new museum in Athens. I was very nice to, I was very pleased to be invited to join that, uh, that group. I, 
you know, I, I formed a non-for-profit organization to try to, you know, address looted antiquities and, 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 you know, why they have to be returned. And, and the book that you were referring to was sort of my, um, you know, legal analysis. Hey, let's pretend there was a lawsuit right now. And if there was a lawsuit right now, uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to, you know, give you all the facts and I want you to be the jury and let's hear the case and you decide. That was the first book that you, you were referencing. Why don't we just sue the British Museum? This one uh, is a novella. And, and I decided, you know, first of all, since I knew that time so well, I thought, you know, let, let's put a let's put a personal spin on it. And instead of looking at it from, you know, the academic sort of way let's look at it from people who actually lived there in that time what was it like to effectively to be a slave in, in an occupied country what was it like and did anyone try to stop them so i did a lot of research and i found yeah there was actually a, a pretty big movement to try to stop them from looting all those pieces and you know uh, within 20 years later actually greece fought for their independence and won so this was part of you know this was part of a, a real you know uh a real effort on the part of the Greeks to get their identity back and the looting of the Parthenon actually, you know, inspired a lot of them to say, we're not going to do that. We, we're not going to take this anymore. We're not going to be slaves. We have to fight and get our independence. Um, so that's, that's why the novella for me was interesting and rewarding because it, it really took it from, you know, the people who live there and their sacrifices and what does this treasure actually mean to them? You know, it's like us with the, with, with the, um, you know, with the Statue of Liberty, as for example, you know, it, it has a lot of meaning for Americans. There's a lot of meaning. It's very significant, you know, especially first generations, but also second generations. You know, it, it it's a big symbol for us. And, and if, if someone would take the time and and just think, you know, well, how would you feel if, you know, um, let's say when we were still, you know, when if, if America wasn't able to do anything about it and somebody came in and just chopped the head off and sent it to a museum in Egypt and chopped the arm off and sent it to a museum in, in, in Australia and, you know, and, and, and the beautiful book sent it somewhere. And then and then not only will they not return it to the U.S., but then they say, sorry, we own this, the, the, the head now. I own it. You, you know, it's a different country. We own it. It's in our museum. You know, what would we Americans we go to war we would bomb we would carpet bomb we would destroy we would ban we would go back and, but Greece you know they're a small country they can't do that and they're not the only small country that's been exploited like this so so that's why that, that's why this book sort of culminated you know to to where it was I really wanted to personalize it and give people an opportunity to 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 sort of feel what it would be like a to be a slave and then b to watch your national treasure being ripped from you without you being able to do anything about it I love, in fact, that the British Museum refers to them as the Elgin marble, marbles, you know, the Lord yeah. Elgin that stole them. They're his. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, you know, I go to your house and I steal your car and then I donate it to charity as my car. <laughs> right. You're, 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 you're not only recognizing, you know, a thief, but you're rewarding him for his, his conduct. You know, but you're also stripping away the ownership by doing that title, too. If you called them the Parthenon sculptures from Greece, then people would immediately in their heads would associate ownership with Greece. And they would think there was. But this is a perfect way to sever that completely by changing the name. So tell us a little bit about the, the main characters in the story and how they interact throughout the story. Well, what I thought was very important to do was to create a family and to, to explain what family life would be like then, who would be doing what role, how they would get by their day and day. And then also try to, um, you know, to, to set up a situation whereby, you know, you could add a little... Um, you know, you could add a little story to, to the basic facts and sort of tie that today, because, you know, when, when you write historical fiction, it, it's still fiction. Um, so, you, you know, you have to use your best efforts to, to accurately describe, you know, the setting, you know, in that historical sense at that time, in that place, you know, they didn't have marble on the floor. Um, you know, they had dirt on the floor and they had to keep that somehow and they had to brush that and they had, 
you know, uh, sort of carpets. And you, know, you have to accurately, what did they eat? How, how many times a day did they eat? You know, what, what all these things you have to be clear about. But you also have to, you, you can't create too much fiction, in other words, such that you can't create hyper-intelligent, well-read characters in a time when they were slaves. You, 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 you have to be accurate and understand that, well, these people would not have had access to pretty much any books other than perhaps a Bible, um, you know, that they would have had to keep hidden from their, you know, from their Muslim overlords. So it, it's, um, it, it was, in other words, in, in order to paint the right family, you also had to paint the surroundings. So who were the, who did they associate with? There was a priest. Well, the priest probably would have been the most educated person amongst them. So you have to write, you know, such that you allow that to be known, um, you know, and then you also have people who, you know, had zero education at all. And, you know, and, and you have to find a good mix in there and, and, and be able to, you know, be honest with them and still try to keep a story, you know, together and, and going forward with enough emotion um, and, you know, honesty that, that people would believe in, in these characters. So that, that's what I tried to do. So you formally, formerly named the book Atenny Samjack, which is one of the characters' names. Uh, no, um, it's actually the name of, uh, it's the name of the city where they oh, were. Okay. Yeah, because back then there was no Athens, there was no Greece. They were run by Samjaks. Samjaks are, are sort of like provinces, how the British would, would divide up areas for, you know, a lord would have this particular geographic area. And sort of the, the 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 Muslims did the same thing. They were run by some jockeys, these you know these lords who ran these areas. And this one took place in in Athens, what was called Athens at the time. So Ateni Samjak. That's just what that province was called. But it was too confusing for people. <laughs> you know, it sounded very difficult, very academic, and I think it lost a lot of people. So you changed the title to changed "Make Me Breathless." and I will still sing. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? How does that reflect in the book? Well, you know, I, I think the title, you know, may be a little artsy, um, but I think what's, what's, what's significant to me about that title and why I really like it so much is because it's, it really portrays the life of, of the slave, you know, in that, you know, whatever you do to me, um, you can beat me, you can, I'm still going to rise. And in this case, you can silence me and I'm still going to sing. You can, you can knock the wind out of me, strip my core. I'm still going to, you know, whatever you do, I'm still going to succeed. I, we are going to get freedom. You can kill me and we're still going to get freedom. We will still be free. So it was, it was just, you know, one of, one of those many type of ideas I was tossed around. And I just thought that that was a good way to sort of capture you know, what these main characters, you know, were, were, were feeling. So let's take the, and it's so hard to identify who's the most evil character, but let's take the real bad guy, Lord Elgin, who was the overseer of all the theft um, yeah. and is now the owner <laughs> of the Marvels. Um, how hard was it to, write him in such a way that you also had that I don't know if you can go so far as to say empathy but that understanding of the fact that he was doing what was quote unquote normal for everybody that was in that area it wasn't like he was the guy that invented the concept of grave robbing and stripping stuff off of the you know the Parthenon yeah I mean that's that's the other flip side of it if if you you know if you create a you don't have to create a villain where there already is one. What you have to do is you have to accurately describe that person. And, you know, and, and Elgin, you know, was, uh, you know, he was a diplomat. He was young. He found himself, you know, in, in, you know, in front of the Sultan as being the representative of England, of Britain. Britain had just, you know, the British Navy had just defeated Napoleon 
and they return control of the uh, of the um, uh, of the Suez to um, uh, the 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 Turks of the Suez of the uh, Amazon. <laughs> they they return they, they were not the Amazon. It is the Suez. They return they return complete control to them, and and that was an, a gesture that was uh, uh, amazing. They they defeated their their foe, and then they give them over control of the entire port. That was the most significant to their, you know, to their power base. So, and Elgin shows up as the representative of this country. So anything he asked for, he was given. And when he pursued, you know, that, and when he walked around and saw the Parthenon and all these other treasures, he recognized what they were. He was a product of, you know, uh, of, of English, you know, um, you know, aristocracy. He, he knew the significance of them. He knew Roman antiquities. And now he recognized this preceded that. This is older than Rome. Holy mackerel, what is this? Look at this temple. I can't believe it. He thought it was an opportunity for him. These people don't know, these Turks don't know what they have here. He wasn't concerned with the Greeks who were underneath the Turks who may have, you know, created it. His, his goal was, holy mackerel, I can be a star at home if I take this back. I can be... You know the 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 the, the torchbearer, you know, and the bringer of light, and a, you know, and, and open up a whole new avenue of of you know of 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 history, you know, to to our enlightened people. So he thought, you know, it was just an opportunity. He found himself in the right position. At that time, you know, you could bribe somebody. Bribery was acceptable, you know, when you have to deal with these subcultures you know, perhaps as, as the British would look at them. So bribery was, was normal. He took advantage of his situation. I argue strenuously that he, he uh, exceeded what was normal and acceptable in, in some of the things, some of the actions that he did. But the way that I tried to write him in this novella um, was, was really less to create a villain rather than perhaps more to explain you know, the, the, the thought process of, of what he was going through. I was trying to think, I almost went to the internet over here on the other screen to look up the Parthenon's one of the seven wonders of the world, right? No, they never did because when they, when they decided which were the seven wonders, they hadn't found the Parthenon yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> they found the Colossus of Rhodes. I don't know. And they missed the Parthenon, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, even with that said, it's still definitely as one of the wonders of the world, even if it doesn't make the top seven on whoever made that list. Yeah, it's over two and, uh, and a half know, thousand told, years old and it's still standing. Yeah. And it's an amazing structure. But I wonder in my mind, because of how well the marble stood up, you know, what's still there, how amazing would that structure look if it hadn't been looted like that at that time? Absolutely. Absolutely. In 14, in 14, I want to say about 1450, uh, there was a, uh, there was a war uh, with the, um, uh, with the Venetians and, and the Venetians were in the port of Athens and they were firing out cannonballs, um, you know, against the Turks when they were in their, in their war. And the Turks had stored ammunition in the Parthenon because it was way up in the castle, so high up, it was very difficult to get to, and it was a very safe place for them they thought to store their ammunition. Unfortunately, one of these cannons hit a big cache of ammunition and blew up. And when it blew up, it blew the roof off. So as of the mid-1400s, it still had a roof. So imagine that, a roof that withhold almost 2,000 years? Crazy. Crazy. And that's that's probably the hardest part when you're when you're writing, you know, historic fiction is trying to describe something that you can only really see in your mind's eye. And it just doesn't really do it justice to what it must've looked back, you know, 600 years ago now. So I know we talked about with the, why don't we sue the British museum, some practical things that people could do to be part of uh, your, your nonprofit and stuff like that. Is that your hope with this? Or are you just kind of wanting to inform people? What, what would you like to see come out of, uh, out of this particular book? I, I really would like, I really would like people to, 
to enjoy it, first of all, as a, just a work of historical fiction, um, to take you back to that period in the early 1800s, what it would have been like to live under occupation, um, and, and understand that the Parthenon held meaning, significant meaning to those people at that time, not just us today, those people at that time who were witness to it being torn apart and were not able to stop that. And, and I think, I think that's, that's the point of it. If we were sitting here today, you and I in New York, watching the Statue of Liberty again, as, as the example, if we were watching that get torn apart and we weren't able to stop it, that time frame, while you're struggling to stop it, the struggle you're going through, the pain, the fight, that's what this story is about. And it's the same meaning, perhaps even more, because that's preceded these people by, you know, 1900 years. So it's always been a part of their society and their parents and grandparents and great and great and great all the way back. And they were forced to watch it be ripped apart. And, and that's, a, that's a real pain. And it still exists to this day. How many generations after, you know, so, so I, I think for us as Americans, I think, I think this is, should be a nice, you know, it should be a nice eye opener to, to sort of understand, you know, you know, what, what, what the real impact, you know, of, of slavery is. And, and this is probably a different form than I think most Americans are, are used to seeing. It's not, it doesn't deal with, you know, slavery here in the U S you know, it deals with slavery you know, abroad and, and the consequence of that. And I, I think there are a lot, a lot of parallels that can be drawn, you know, between the two experiences, um, you know, and, and hopefully people will, you know, have a different appreciation for antiquities and really where they belong. It for sure colors in my mindset going to a museum, really different feel for that, you know, <laughs> Yeah, if you knew the backstory, you might not want to go to the museum, huh? Right? You know, it's like, I mean, imagine if a guy had in his garage, you know, a display of all the stuff he had stolen from, you know. I mean, there are court cases that are all about the guy's display of his stuff in his garage. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the book is called Make Me Breathless and I'll Still Sing. Um, it's by Michael Repus. It is available for free today and tomorrow. I'm going to put the link in again. You can get it. Michael, I the story is so amazing to me. I, I almost want you to write another book because I just enjoy them all so much. But no, thank you so much for making this in story form to, you know, make it real for some of us. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate your time and, 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 and thanks for spreading the word. Yeah. Thanks for being with me on the show here today. Thank you. Take care. History is just riddled with stories of people, events, things that went on that are so amazing. They were amazing overcomers in spite of the circumstances, in the midst of the things that were going on in their life. They overcame. They thrived right there where it was today. The more that I learn about the Parthenon and about ancient Greece, you know, um, it, it's amazing to me all the things that are inside of that story. And I do really encourage you to get all of Michael's books. They really do such a great job of helping you understand that concept as well as that time frame and have a larger view of the world. And in some ways, when we talk about overcoming, that's one of the most powerful things we can do is have knowledge because knowledge is power. And then we can live as a thriving entrepreneur. We'll be right back. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. <laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet, kind of feeling, go to yourbestsellertoday.com, schedule a talk with Steve.
Steve. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. Wow, what an amazing first segment. And now we've got another amazing international best-selling author to bring to you with a great story to help you learn how to do the things that the people who seem to magically succeed do that helps them really truly be successful in life. At the end of the day, it really isn't magic. It isn't some kind of uh, mystical thing that they do. It is just really and truly, purely them showing up and overcoming in the space that they're in with the knowledge they have and some insight into things that other people don't see. And that is such a powerful way to thrive right here today, to overcome in the space that you are and really show up as the best version of yourself throughout the course of each of your days. So let's jump into our next amazing guest. Join me in welcoming Stephen Feinberg. Hey, Stephen, how are you doing today? Great, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Good Such a great day right now. Yeah. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. So, uh, the book is called Advantage Makers, How Exceptional Leaders Win by Creating Opportunities Others Don't. And we want to talk about that one. But before we do that, just to give us a general idea, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world. Who I am? Well, it began in the beginning, and I was a shoeshine boy on the streets of New York as a little kid when I was five years old. Then I became a paper boy. Um, I was a New York City doorman. Uh, I actually was a carnival barker at one point, uh, and I, which taught me exactly what not to do and not, how not to treat human beings, right? <laughs> so it was a big lesson, um, well, well received and appreciated. I was also a New York City cab driver when I was going to college. Um, and uh, Probably another thing that taught you what not to do. Every cab driver has a philosophy. That's what I've realized. Every time you get in a cab, they all have philosophies. And it takes 30 seconds and they'll tell you philosophy. You know, it's like you say, let's keep moving here. You know, like, can we get around this track? And then the, cop, the, the uh, uh, cabbie will say, there's nothing to rush to. You'll eventually get there. That's always there for, you know, whatever it is. And then you get the opposite philosophy from the next cab, cab driver you get into. It's really interesting. Um, but then I became a, um, a, a drug counselor and, su- and I ran a suicide prevention center for quite a while. Um, and then what, we owned the family uh, pizzeria in New York City as well. So uh, it's a pretty wide scope. And then eventually I became a... a a trainer and executive coach. I'm a neurostrategist and um, working with clients from Google, Apple, LinkedIn, Visa, uh, Wells Fargo. Uh, and I taught 30 years at the University of San Francisco in a multidisciplinary courses in psychology, business, and uh, communications and leadership. So, um, Neuro training. What 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 does that involve? Neuro strategy, right? Yeah. So 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 think about it as brains and games, right? So neuro is brain, the neuro circuits of the brain, how they operate, and what are the patterns that they, what triggers them, what enables them, what disrupts them, how do you design them, how do you add more skill sets? So the neuro neuroscience based. It's a, the application. I'm not a neuroscientist. It's the application of it. And strategy is about the thinking that goes in the game, the game part. So it's brains, games, and foes. How do you deal with difficulties, obstacles, etc.? So are you I into... Work leaders, I work with leaders in there uh, uh, to help them 
transform the game. Mm -hmm. So is part of what you teach uh, things like game theory, or do you have one of your own that is differing from what game theory is? Well, it's, it, it's different, but game, you know, game theory is, you know, I'm, it's brilliant and I understand it, but it's, it's really, there, there are other, I understand that there are a certain set of rules um, that who gets to say what to whom when is a set of is an underlying rule that people often don't realize. And uh, it has really a substantial consequences, the hidden rules that have substantial consequences on our behavior and the outcomes that we have and the decisions that we make. It's really tough. It would be like, and life seems to be this way, actually, like playing a game where you don't really know, you know, somebody just hands you a Monopoly board and some pieces and says, okay, play this game, but you don't know what it is. That's right. kind of life. <laughs> yeah, it's always the context, right? We walk into a context. It's the playing field, right? And your life is like that Monopoly board, only it's a different set of rules. Uh, and each situation, every context you come into has a different set of rules. And some of them are patterns and they're familiar and some of them are different. Right. And so there it's it's the the most highly skilled people, the advantage makers are capable of reading the rule book, you know, the hidden rule book really fast mm. and navigate it. So you said you have like the first page from your book or something that kind of helps explain that to us. You want to go ahead and read that to us? Sure, sure. Let me just grab it. So um, this is not a bedtime story, so keep your eyes awake. Yeah. <laughs> if you're driving, don't <laughs> just keep your eyes awake. So this is the first page of my book, The Advantage Makers. Hundreds of years ago in medieval Austria, a small but determined army was trying desperately to hold off to onto its fortress against tremendous odds. For more than six months, the defenders had been surrounded by a hostile army with no way to contact the outside and help replenish their stock, supplies had dwindled to a desperate level. Only one cow and two bags of grain were left. The fortress soldiers, racked with fatigue and hunger, turned to the commander for guidance, expecting their leader to say the expected rational food for as long as we can to hold out. They were astonished and perturbed as well when they received a different radical reply. Kill the cow stuff it all with the grain that we have and toss it over the walls when the next wave of attacks occur, ensues. This seemed illogical, foolhardy, and dangerous. But during the next attack, they followed the unexpected order and heaved the grain of a stuffed cow over the wall. Without a doubt, they anticipated a slow, anguished death of by starvation. But the commander had foreseen something that no one else had. Confused by this bovine assault, several of the attackers took the cow back to the officer's tent. The attacking officer saw it for what it was, a signal of defiance from the fortress commander, as well as a message that his soldiers had the will to fight on. If they could afford to throw a cow stuffed with excess grain over the wall, he reasoned, they must have this vast stores of supplies, enough for the entire winter. He ordered an immediate retreat. So it's an amazing situation. By the way, I have a business card. I went to the, the fortress, the actual fortress that that was there. Um, uh, it was uh, Castle Hochholstowitz in, in outside in Austria. And I wanted to see the place that this actually occurred and it was a true story, right? And so how does this relate? You might ask, well, how does this medieval cow tossing relate to business and leadership and everyday activities? Well, the, 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 the commander engaged in strategic shifting, the thinking that an advantage maker does. They are able to shift the situation. So he shifted, for example, he saw the food as instead of it being something to just eat and digest and keep them alive, he used it as to send a message to the other attackers, right? He shifted the amount of time. They thought they only had um, like days left. And by sending this message, he said, we have a long period of time in which we have to deal with, right? So he was shifting the game. And, you know, like people say, well, maybe he just got lucky. 
right? And this was not luck. This was a very well thought out, desperate, no doubt, but thought out, look, if we don't do this, talking about gaming, so if we game out the situation, we only have an extra couple of days. I have to do something now. What can I do? How can I take this unexpected, you know, to shift my thinking to something that will work, will work and transform things, right? And so this is whenever you're up against the odds, against the odds, this strategic shifting is something that you can do when you learn the skill sets that advance the lens that they have. It's interesting to me. I watch way too much TV and movies, but it always amazes me when you see a battle scene, how seldom there's any tacticians involved in any of the battle scenes. It's like, that was so strategically stupid. Why did you do that? I mean, I understand that it makes the TV show have to have another show now, you know, another episode now, but that was just dumb. <laughs> right. Right. It does. And it just, it's like, what, what's the reason for this silliness and, and, and yet we all do these things, right? We all don't you know if you, but if you go meta, if you step back and look at the situation, you can begin to see the context that you're in and how it's going to play out. And that's what the commander did. And that's what we all can do. They can, you can get to uh, what I call, you can get to the eighth floor, right? It's, so I was in, I was at uh, Sun Microsystems uh, many years ago, and I was talking to a manager I was co uh, consulting with, coaching him. And he said to me, well, everyone, you know, like here's, he was discussing some issue with his boss and he said, well, he has his opinion. I have my opinion. And it's just the way it is. Everyone has their opinions. I said, yeah, but who has the vantage point? And he went, well, what do you mean vantage point? I said, and we walked, uh, it was about 5 PM. We walked over to the, it was on, we were on the eighth floor. We, we walked over to the window. I said, come here, look, we looked out at the, uh, the traffic, you know, like the rush hour traffic, so-called rush hours, slowed to a standstill. And I said, look at that one blue car and watch the way he's driving. I watched him. I noticed him. And he was zoomed in and out and he got off the freeway and he went around. And I went, God, that guy's really trying to figure this obstacle out, trying to get, you know, someplace. And as we stood there and watched, I noticed that he made a, he made a, um, a right turn into the, um, towards a direction that there was going to be a construction zone, another two, two or three blocks up that he couldn't get beyond. And he'd have to double back. And I said, if we could have communicated to him, we could have told him there's a construction zone ahead. From our vantage point, we actually know what's actually going to happen. We can actually see it. It's not an opinion. We can see it. I said, everybody, in every situation, there is someone, not necessarily the leader, not necessarily the person with power, but someone has the vantage point to see the reality. And so what we're talking about is seeing reality in a way that can transform the decisions, the instant decisions to be able to create the, the outcomes, better outcomes for yourself, better experiences that you might, might want. So it's like getting to that eighth floor, be able to see what's really going on when who has it. You may not have it. Maybe the answer lies with somebody else has answers. Sometimes you do have it, right? And so it's being able to be flexible, adaptable in your thinking. That's another thing that advantage makers do. How does a person determine between I've got that vantage and I need to go to somebody else because I don't see it? Right. This is like, how do I know that I'm not, I just have my own yeah. opinions, right? Well, right. <laughs> most of us just have our own opinions. <laughs> Right. And but some of us, you know, like really the, there are the, like we just had some tree uh, guys out here. We have some beautiful trees out here. We just moved to this lovely place in Oregon and we have these beautiful trees and there's a little um, browning. And I said, I know nothing about this. This is above my pay grade. This guy told me came in and he started explaining to me what was going on up there and what we should do. And it was clear that he knew he had a much better understanding of, he had an expertise, a knowledge base that was true, that was accurate. And so part of it is, is going, um, 
to be able to, and, and a, if you think about an interaction different than a tree, you know, where you have specific skill set, but in the interaction, you can look at, well, how's that working for you? You know, one of the questions I always ask people is, you know, like leaders will come in and they'll, I had one client who was um, getting in trouble with um, the CEO. And I said to him, uh, basically, uh, and he kept on blaming the the other, you know, the CEO for various reasons. And it wasn't that it wasn't accurate, but I said, how's that working for you? Your communication, the way you're interacting, right? And how's it working for you? The answer was it wasn't. (laughs) And so that's a useful question to ask. How's that working for you? Right. Another thing you can do is ask, do you see it differently? Here's my point of view. Right. So as best I can, I ha- I can see this part of it. I can see as much of this situation, this co- this difficulty as best I can. Here's my view. Am I missing anything? Do you see it differently? So challenge. Be willing to challenge your own thinking with the other person instead of it being a contest of who's got, you know, who knows exactly what's right. It's like you can actually engage in a game-changing, what I call game-changing conversation. Some routines, these are routines, language routines that can increase the likelihood of you moving things forward and more accurately. A lot of times people, um, they, they ha- they're sincere about being upset about a situation. You know, like, um, like my mother yelled at me, she doesn't love me. Um, and... If you go, well, what actually happened? Well, I was I was at the street and she just yelled at me. I said, what was happening at the street? Well, my ball went into the street and I started running out to the ball. I said, and my mother just yelled at me. Well, why did she, did you see, she said, oh, and then the car stopped. So your mother yelled at you because she could see that there was a car and she was actually saving your life. You went, oh, okay, <laughs> yes. Right. And so people have this reactive sincerity. They're sincerely and they feel these feelings, but it isn't actually necessarily an accurate representation of what's happened or what's happening or what will happen. Right. And so it's being able to go through some of these kind of situations. So, of course, the big question is, can everyone be an advantage maker or is it a skill set that some people just you know, shouldn't even bother because they just can't. Well, I spend my life writing this, you know, doing these things because I believe everyone can do it, right? <laughs> and, and I think I have a vantage point on that. I think the answer is yes. <laughs> and so let me give you an example of, of, of advantage makers that's commonplace. So um, someone walks up to an airline ticket counter and one person, the airline ticket counter says, we can't do anything for you. And that person uh, accepts that and walks away. You know, like they wanted their seat changed. Another person starts into gets into a fight, right? And the third person, the advantage maker, they say they pleasantly start to interact with the uh, ticket agent and they have a conversation with them. And the ticket agent goes, "Wait a second, let me look. Let me just check something for you, right?" And then you have a conversation, and the doors open up that couldn't. That third person is the advantage maker. Same thing in a negotiation. For you're in a negotiation, someone says, "Here's how, here's what the terms are, here's what we can do," and one person, you know, they either um, uh, accepts it just as the way the person said. The second person starts; um, they just walk away. They go, "That's I can't do that," and they just walk away. First person accepts it. Second person walks away, and the third person goes engages in a conversation to find a better way. Let's find up, you know, this, I see what you're after. This is what matters to you. This is the criteria you have. Here's the time frame. Here's how I could do this a little better. Maybe you could give. And now you have a much better negotiation. That's an advantage maker. Same thing on a team. A person for, you know, one person, you know, that something is going on, people are getting upset and they get one, they, one person gets frustrated. The other person just pushes back. And the third person says, am I doing something that's making this more difficult for us to get to make this work together? Right. The third person is advantage maker. So every this is all you can actually start seeing that in certain language patterns, you can actually hear the advantage makers. And that's how I got into it. I went I noticed 
you know, it's like, why, why did I do this? I noticed there's some people just continuously got better advantages out of situations and it had nothing to do with their education, had nothing to do with their socioeconomic condition, had nothing to do with their gender, it was males and females, had nothing to do with how hard they worked, right? But it was the patterns that they were engaged in. And so what the book does, the Advantage Makers, it shows you the patterns that where, where you get stuck, where you can do things differently. So everybody really does need to get the book, especially since it is something for everyone. The book is called Advantage Makers, How Exceptional Leaders Win by Creating Opportunities Others Don't. And I'm going to put the link in right now so you can get it. If you didn't read it in the description, there it is in the comments for you as well. Stephen, I'm so looking forward to reading the book and seeing all the people that get it. Um, give us one tip for somebody who has never, you know, somebody who's always either been that uh, explosive, angry with the ticket counter person or walk away person. What could they do just to begin to embrace the concept of having a conversation? Um, well, keep your eye on the prize. It's like, what do you want to have happen? And they'll go and look at the, what you're doing is, is, and ask yourself, is, is that getting you what you want? Like kind of like what I said earlier, is that getting, is that working for you? No. So who else could be doing the, how would someone else do it who may be able to make it? It, it actually go. And if someone's not around you go, if I'm pushing, why don't I do something that's 180 degrees, the opposite, instead of pushing, maybe I should be asking. Right. Instead of um, walking away, maybe I should be um, requesting help. Right? So look at 100 and a simple idea is a 180 degree solution to whatever you're doing. So if you're if, if every time you say something, the other person fights back, you, it goes it's escalating up. Maybe what you can do is be the first person to deescalate. Right. And take a breath. Breathing happens to be a really important value from the brain's point of view of accessing, beginning to put yourself back in what's called vagal control. That is the, the vagus nerve allows you to either be in a sympathetic or parasympathetic uh, orientation. And you want to be to calm yourself. Your breathing puts you in parasympathetic uh, tendency. So take a breath, walk away, you know, to breathe. And then go, what's 180 degrees? What's one th small thing that I can do differently? Mm, I love that. Well, everybody do run and get Advantage Makers from Amazon. You can actually get it today for free. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us on the show here today. I enjoyed it. And uh, hello to everyone. And uh, go create a few advantages in your life. Shift the odds in your favor. Have you ever said... I feel like that person is blessed, like they know something I don't know, like they've gotten an advantage in life that other people didn't have. They were born with a silver spoon in their mouth, et cetera, et cetera. There's you know, many of those kind of things that we look at others without being in their skin, without going through their lives, and we believe that's what it is. And yet, the truth of the matter is, is often, now there's definitely some education and training in there and some ability to, to understand tactics, knowledge, those kind of things, but a lot of it really comes from that studying, that learning, that applying themselves, and that using of your brain. Um, you know, sometimes it's as simple as, as my dad always said, there's a reason why God gave us two ears and one mouth. So we listen twice as much as we speak. And sometimes the greatest insights come from just simply listening. I remember there was a time um, I was in a uh, conversation with a client. This was a lot of years ago. Um, I was actually working in internet space at the time. And the client was very upset over the latest rendition of their website. Um, and it would have been really easy. I could have easily walked out of that uh, fired as a company, you know, and the, the company that I was consulting with and working with. Um, but instead, 
I took the other tactic with it and I said, so let's look at what we can come up with as a solution that works for you. Uh, long story short, without going into all of it, it ended up that the long-term solution for that was that company that was so upset ended up actually buying out the company I was consulting with. Um, and they actually brought me on as a contractor to help uh, with the startup of that new company that they had bought out and then created from having bought that internet service provider. Um, really long story, very short. But it's about those times when it seems impossible, when life seems stacked against you, when you're a slave in your own country, when you are up against a, an opposing army, literal or figurative, that has you outnumbered and outclassed, and yet in it, wisdom comes in capability comes in and you overcome because you just do the best you can do today. You don't worry about, well, what if they do this? You tactically look at what the best and most likely response to what you do will be. And then you take the best action you can for today. Same thing's true in our life and our business. It's about what can I do to be the best today? Who in my life do I love? And I do I want to make sure that before today's over, I say very clearly to them, I love you. Who in my life do I need to teach? And before today's over, how can I teach them just one thing? Not the whole world, not everything I've learned, but just one little thing. What can I do? to help them up-level, to have a better life today. And then as we each grow and learn and we maximize today, imagine what a world it would be if each of us just simply woke up with the intent of doing one and only thing today, and that's be the best version of ourselves today. That's a world that would be life-altering, world-shaking, and oh, the things that people could do as each of us just shows up as the overcomer that we are, maximizes today, does that thing that only we can do today and let tomorrow take care of itself. Because you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose and the world needs you. We need you to just simply be the best you that you can be while it's called today. Show up. Don't give up. And be who you can be. Do the best you can do today to overcome, to show up, to live as a thriving entrepreneur. I want that for you, and I hope you will. Until we're together again next time, I hope you know how much I appreciate you, and I hope that you will have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. who's on a mission stand out with your brand out <laughs> check this out guys yep everything's marketing and marketing is everything your existing book can become a best-selling book or even hey like mine a number one international best-selling book in five days listen if your business isn't known by everybody it's obscurity and that's death right the same thing is true for your book if you're not happy with the way your book is performing you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling Go to yourbestsellertoday.com, schedule a talk with Steve,
believe. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. You